0: Welcome back friends, Uh, another episode of You Make Me Sick. Uh, Starting off season two, it's a new year, I figure we'll start the next season here. Gonna be talking today about a nasty little bug called tuberculosis. This is actually a request from one of our friends uh, for the program, uh, and a good friend of mine, Hillary, thank you Hillary for giving me an email and just kind of requesting this. Uh, TB, pretty well known, uh, disease, we'll talk about all different aspects of it uh, and I'll even mention some uh, some notable people who have either died or had TB. Uh, not going to start off with any kind of a monkey up- pox update. Uh, if you want to check the status of monkey pox right now, uh, you can still check the CDC and the WHO, kind of leveled off and actually going down. Cases are going down. That's just, uh, you know, better uh, Better vaccines, well, not even vaccines, but the vaccines getting out there, people people being more aware of what's causing it and spreading it. But uh, so from now on, going forward, if there's anything new or interesting in the infectious disease world, I'll probably bring it up at the beginning. Uh, I knew there's new, new talk of another uh, variant of COVID, but there's going to be a new variant from now and forever. And uh, they'll probably all continue to evade uh, vaccines because we're just far behind on vaccines. I'm not even going to get into it. Anyway, uh, I do ask for some patience. I'm actually getting over uh, an illness myself, uh, presumptive uh, influenza. Uh, My wife was sick before I was, and I was for the last, uh, taking me over a week to really start to feel better now. But uh, it's out there, it's nasty. My last four patients I took care of um, before I kind of went on a little bit of Christmas vacation. Uh, all had the flu, so uh, I'm saying it's presumptive because I never actually got tested for it. But I tested negative for COVID. My wife, who was sick before I was, uh, she actually got Tamiflu, and she felt better after about five days. I was kind of out of the window for Tamiflu. Uh, you have to get it within the first like 48 to se- 48 to 72 hours, I believe, uh, for it to really be effective. And by the time I started feeling really crappy, I was already like you know almost three days into my sickness. But it uh, worked well for her. So if you start to feel crappy, think it might be the flu, uh, talk to your practitioner. Tamiflu does work. Uh, pretty good antiviral. Uh, anyway, I didn't get it, and it was, it was nasty. So if, you, if I cough, uh, or if I start to need, i got some tea with me right now, I need to drink some tea. Uh, I will try and pause the podcast and edit it out, but you might hear me uh, not sound 100% today. Anyway, let's get on to, uh, to TB. So tuberculosis, uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis to be specific, is the name of the bacteria. There's a a whole group of these Mycobacterium, there's Mycobacterium bovis, uh, which is found in cows, Mycobacterium africanum, and Mycobacterium microti, and a few others. All together these considered uh, to make up the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, but we're just going to talk about the Mycobacterium tuberculosis specifically because that's what's found in humans and is the most prevalent. So, Mycobacterium tuberculosis, I'm going to refer to it just as TB throughout the podcast. I'm going to be a little bit easier to follow and I won't stumble over my words quite as much. So, it's a, it's a small, rod-shaped bacteria. It is strictly aerobic, which it means it, uh, it needs oxygen to survive. And it's considered to be what's called an acid-fast bacillus, uh, essentially when they're trying to determine bacteria in a lab. And they're doing staining methods. Uh, this just means that uh, the bacteria actually resist staining by kind of any kind of acid or alcohol, which can make it difficult to actually detect. It's uh, also incredibly slow growing, which is problematic. This can also cause delays in the diagnosis of it. Uh, in a clinical setting, when we have somebody that we suspect might have been exposed to or has TB. We'll actually put them in uh, airborne isolation. So they'll be in a specific room, we call it negative pressure room, uh, where airflow goes in but airflow from the room actually doesn't enter out, it's actually filtered out. And taking care of these patients, you need to wear a particulate mask or a respirator, so an N95 or what's called a, a PAPR, uh, when taking care of these patients. Typically the source for infection uh, for most people, it's a pulmonary issue, so it's from the lungs or laryngeal, uh, so upper respiratory. and it's spread through coughing, or speaking, or sneezing, any kind of thing that's gonna produce uh, droplet particles. Uh, it's contagious, but not as contagious as something like the flu, definitely not as contagious as something like COVID or other viruses. In uh, most cases, you have to spend a prolonged period of time, usually up to several hours in close contact with somebody to actually get infected yourself. Uh, this is. It happens a lot with family members who live together. That's why you'll see uh, TB spread throughout the households a lot because people don't even know they have it but are spreading it to each other. But if you're sitting next to somebody on a bus or you're in an elevator, even for a short period of time, even if they cough near you or on you, the odds of getting tuberculosis are probably pretty low. Uh, everyone who has TB also isn't infectious. Uh, I'll talk in a few minutes about latent TB. Uh, most children who have tuberculosis aren't uh, infectious either. Just the mechanics of children, their ability to cough and uh, produce the secretions that cause it. usually doesn't cause enough of the bacteria to be expelled to actually cause any kind of infection. And there's also something called extrapulmonary TB. This is where you can actually have a tuberculosis infection somewhere else in and around the body, uh, not in the lungs though. And this usually isn't infectious either. For most people, even if you're exposed to it, uh, your immune system can actually destroy the bacteria. Uh, For those people who are exposed to it and do end up with an infection, uh, there is something called latent TB. Uh, Latent TB is when you don't have any symptoms from it. Uh, It's not contagious at this point. It can be dormant in the body. Uh, There is a large global prevalence of latent TB, but it's unknown exactly how many people have it. But the WHO does estimate that about one quarter of the world population has latent TB. Uh, most of this is going to be in third-world countries, uh, underdeveloped countries, uh, in more modern countries. We actually do a pretty good job of being able to contain and treat TB. The, uh, the actual infection, though, uh, once you actually are infected with it, uh, if you are going to have an active TB, usually starts within weeks or months. Uh, with latent TB, it can not show itself for a couple of years. Up to about 10% of people who have latent TB actually develop active TB, but this is usually years after the initial infection. So, not a huge amount of people who have the latent TB will actually become uh, contagious with active tuberculosis. Uh, this can actually be affected if you have somebody who's immunocompromised, uh, if you have somebody who is receiving chemotherapy, uh, steroids, other drugs that are going to affect your immune system, and you have a latent tuberculosis. This can actually cause the active tuberculosis to, to kind of show its ugly head. There are high risk populations as well for tuberculosis. Um, kind of getting just covering all our bases here with those who might be a little more susceptible. People who actually come from or live in uh, a country that has a high incidence of tuberculosis, obviously will be at higher risk. Anybody who's been in close contact with somebody who has TB, um, people who live in crowded conditions, as I mentioned before, anything that weakens your immune system, so that includes anything that's autoimmune or, uh, or even drugs that are given to you to treat uh, different ailments. People who are very young, so young kids and very old, uh, just immune systems that aren't mature, uh, such as in young children or those as we grow older, our immune systems actually weaken. Uh, we don't create quite the amount of immune cells that we did when we were younger those people are also just a little more susceptible to getting TB. And then people who are just in overall poor health. Uh, substance abuse can be a, a cause for malnutrition. That's one source. Homelessness is another one. Uh, just poor living conditions uh, can actually affect your immune system and your ability to, to fight TB and can lead to that active TB. So let's say you get exposed to tuberculosis. Let's say you get that, uh, that nasty TB. Uh, Let's talk about it just from how it enters the body and the cells it affects, and then kind of where we go from there. So typically, you're going to get it through the respiratory system. It's uh, going to enter into your airway as an aerosol droplet. The first contact that the body actually has once it recognizes it is with the macrophages, which are they're a type of white blood cell to help to fight infection. Uh, it can also be ingested into alveolar epithelial tissue, so in the lungs. Um, this cell type is actually found in a lot larger numbers than macrophages uh, in the lung and tuberculosis loves to infect and grow in that type of tissue. Uh, after the transmission, the TB kind of grows slowly. Uh, like I said before, it's, it's not a fast-growing bacteria. In most cases, the alveoli of the lungs, this is what's called the primary focus, are the first thing affected. And then after that, it can actually kind of disseminate or spread to the lymph nodes of the corresponding areas and this is what is called the primary infection. So these two areas of infection, that primary focus, the alveoli of the lungs, and then the lymph nodes around it, this is actually called the primary complex. So your primary focus and your primary infection form the primary complex. After about one or two months, due to the activation just of all these white blood cells, you have lymphocytes, you have macrophages, Uh, these are kind of cellular immune cells, the The primary focus actually gets contained, so that area that's been infected and it gets encapsulated. Uh, you might think that's a good thing, but the actual center of this area ends up getting cell death, cell necrosis. There's something called a cassius lesion that forms. And it's essentially within inside that capsule, you end up having all this dead tissue. I guess it looked kind of like Swiss cheese is what it was, or uh, cheese like was a tissue uh, when I was reading about it how it kind of looks uh, uh, that's on autopsy or with imaging. Um, And this usually isn't detectable on a chest X-ray unless it calcifies or grows substantially. So a lot of people, when diagnosing TB, sometimes if you have a positive TB test, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, a follow-up exam is a chest X-ray. And if you have these old lesions that are calcified, you can see those on a chest X-ray, but the newer ones, harder to see. Uh, this primary infection, though, it's usually asymptomatic. Most people don't even know they have it. Uh, and in most cases, about 90 to 95 percent, and this is of non-HIV patients, a little bit different HIV where you have uh, almost no immune response to it. These pulmonary lesions actually end up healing on their own with any real intervention. But in that 5 to 10 percent of infected people, that primary infection uh, or what could possibly be a latent TB, if it's been there for a while, turns into an active TB uh, over at some point in their lifetime. Like I said, for for more active stuff the first uh, couple of months, uh, latent stuff maybe after a year or two. It should also be noted that with this infection, there's the possibility of a secondary type of infection as well. Uh, Before the body can really fully fight the bacteria with its immune response, Uh, The primary infectious focus by the lymph nodes can actually transport the bacteria and spread the bacteria throughout the body through the lymph system. Uh, These secondary foci can develop, and this can happen again in the lungs, but you get lymph node infections uh, in your serous membranes, uh, your meninges, uh, your bones and kidneys. But as soon as the body starts to recognize her are there and fight this immune response, typically these resolve without any issues uh, spontaneously. But uh, some of these bacilli and bacteria can actually still remain dormant uh, from the secondary foci for months and sometimes years, again, contributing to this kind of latent TB. There are also different factors, uh, as I mentioned, uh, depending on who you are, if you are immunocompromised or have HIV, uh, can be a lot more serious outcome, just due to the body's inability to actually fight the infection. To be considered an active TB, so a, a TB lesion that you have, it has to contain actively, slowly, or sporadically growing bacteria. And it also has to have dormant bacteria as well. Uh, but about half the cases of TB appear in the year following infection, so it's usually something that happens pretty quickly. Uh, the latent TB versus the active TB. So in an active TB, it usually, it'll happen, you know, relatively quickly compared to something that takes a lot longer. Uh, Without treatment, TB is actually pretty fatal. Uh, After about five years without treatment, uh, and this is in non-HIV infected patients, you got about a 50 to 60% mortality rate. Uh, 20 to 25% spontaneously cure themselves but then about 20 to 25%, you remain, you're still alive, you're still there, but you still continue to have symptoms. So, you know, you get about 50 to 60% if you don't get any treatment who will die, uh, 25% who are still going to have symptoms, and then the other 25%, your body will kind of spontaneously resolve it. So it's still kind of important if you end up with TB to get treatment for it, uh, even though it may not, you know, even if it's latent. Uh, you know, this is after five years without treatment, so eventually it, you know, it may pop up. So, let's say you suspect that you have TB. Uh, how do you get tested for it? So, there's a couple of different ways that they test. The first one is called a TB skin test. This is also called the, the MANTU test, M-A-N-T-O-U. It's a tuberculin skin test. So, this is a test where they take a small needle, we usually we do like insulin needles, very small. Uh, and this can be done uh, by nurses can do this, physicians, uh, they can administer it, and they can read them as well. Uh, but it requires two visits to a healthcare provider. In the first one, they'll actually take uh, this needle, and there's a small fluid called tuberculin, and it goes into the skin, kind of what we call subdermally. So it goes right underneath the skin, and they'll, you inject a small amount, and it forms what we call a bleb. This is usually done right in the forearm. Uh, you'll see it's almost like a little bump. If you've had like a mosquito bite. It kind of looks like that. Uh, typically, you take a, a Sharpie and draw a circle around the area where you did it. And then 48 to 72 hours later, you'd come back in and you'd have somebody take a look at it. If you're negative for TB, then it'll have gone away. There'll be nothing there. There'll be no redness, no no raised areas. If you're positive for TB or possibly have TB... The area will remain raised. It can be a little bit red. It uh, can be a little bit swollen, but it'll definitely be noticeable that something else is there. If that's the case, it's considered a positive test, and you need to have follow up tests for it too. Uh, radio, like, like I said, you know, radiography can be done for if you have a suspected older TB to look at calcifications. Uh, there's also a blood test. So blood tests sometimes are used for people. There, there is a, a vaccine for TB. I think the vaccine at times can give kind of a false positive for the skin test. So they'll do blood tests for that. Uh, The blood tests, so there are two different types of blood tests. Uh, These things are called interferon gamma release assays or IGRAs. Uh, The two blood tests, there's one called quantiferon, which is the TB Gold Plus, that's the one that we tend to use at the hospital I work at. And then there's the T-spot TB test as well. for the blood test, like I said, these are pretty, you know, accurate. Uh, the skin test, I think, sometimes can fall, cause false positives just for multiple reasons. Uh, but the blood test will actually give you a definitive answer whether or not you have antibodies uh, from the TB, which means prior exposure. Uh, once again, if you are positive for this, there'll be additional and uh, additional screenings or additional tests done uh, just to confirm that you have TB. Uh, so let's see, you get it and you're positive for it. What then? So can you treat TB? Uh, there are antibiotics for it. It should be noted though that the antibiotic treatment for TB is a long course. Um, this I'll talk about in just a minute or two here has actually led to a lot of problems with drug-resistant tuberculosis and uh, treatment and, and problems treating uh, tuberculosis, especially in countries that don't have really adequate health care. Uh, so a couple of standard treatments that are done right now with antibiotics. Um, typically they can take four, nine, uh, four to six or nine months, depending on uh, which regimen you use. Uh, there's a four month, which is uh, rifapentine and moxifloxacillin. Those are a couple of antibiotics. Um, that is a treatment uh, that is used over four months. And then there's a six to nine month course, which is uh, the, RI, the RIPE, TB, R-I-P-E, that's uh, rifampin, isoniazide, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol, four different medications you have to take. Uh, this one is a long one. So essentially you have an intensive phase of about two months where you're taking these and then you have your continuation phase, which can last four to seven months uh, of treatment. So it really is a long time. You have to make sure you continue to take these. Uh, Like I said, TB, it can spread, you know, different places and it's hard to get to. It's slow growing as well, so this is why these course of antibiotics take so long. They want to make sure you kill all the bacteria. and These are also for non-HIV patients. I think treatment might be a little bit different depending on uh, HIV, like if you're on your antiretrovirals and I'm not sure with medication uh, interactions, Uh, something I didn't research too, too much, but I think there may be just a little bit different treatment for HIV patients as well. But So, long course of antibiotics. Uh, In the United States, you know, most people should be able to adhere to that. We have them readily available. Uh, Pretty good healthcare here. Around the world, though, not so much. So, it's become a huge issue with these drug-resistant types of bacteria. Uh, We call them superbugs. TB, though, especially, Uh, has become a huge issue. Uh, Countries like the former Soviet Union uh, in South Africa and in India where they have access to antibiotics, but they're kind of subadequate, they're kind of inferior. And most people either, I don't know if they're just not given a long enough prescription, if they don't take them long enough, if they don't have access to them, but a lot of times they'll not take the appropriate amount of antibiotics. You kill the bacteria, start to kill it, and then you don't kill all the bacteria. And then bacteria over time will actually gain resistance to these antibiotics. And then you spread this to somebody else, and now you're spreading an antibiotic resistant bacteria somewhere else. So, uh, the WHO has estimates for these two. So, it, it estimates annually worldwide that uh, there are 1 million or more than 1 million uh, rifampicin susceptible and isonazide resistant TB cases, which is about 11% of all TB cases. Uh, they also estimate there's 3.3% of new cases and about 18% of previously treated cases are multi-drug resistant TB cases. Uh, the multi-drug resistance uh, for the rifampin and uh pretty high incident, but there are others as well. Um, the rifampin resistant, rifampi, rifampicin, ugh, I keep kind of tripping over that word represents about uh, 465,000 cases, which contributes to about 182,000 deaths each year. Uh, what's interesting is that in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, the TB incidence is lower, so you have fewer people that have it, but they have up to 30% and of all new and 65% of retreated cases that have drug resistance. So you have far more drug resistance in these countries uh, that have access to these drugs. You have fewer cases of TB, but more drug resistance. Whereas conversely to that, in China and in India, where you actually have a low proportion of drug resistance, you have a a much higher representation of TB. you got about 41% of uh, global drug-resistant cases in those countries. So smaller drug resistance, more TB. Conversely, you have... Larger drug resistance, but fewer cases, uh, somewhere like uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. Uh, in Africa, there's actually there's not a lot of data to tell us what they have for multi drug resistance because the healthcare is so poor there. Uh, but it's suspected that it's actually pretty high. Uh, thankfully, there are ways to treat the multi drug resistant TB. Uh, there are I think there are four or five different levels of treatment. And each level of treatment becomes a little more aggressive and a little more dangerous as well just because of the types of drugs that are being used. I'm probably not going to go through all of these. There are a lot of them, but uh, I will name some of the medications. So fluorochloroquine, like levofloxacin, and moxifloxacin, which is used here. Um, Betaquiline, clofazamine, clofazamine. I know I'm going to butcher some of these. Um, which is great as a medical professional. Uh, let's see. We mentioned ethanbutol, which I guess you need vision monitoring if you're going to be requiring or is required if you're going to be administering uh, for more than two months. Uh, carbapenems, like mirapenem, um, these are ones that shouldn't be should be administered under the you know, guidance of a healthcare professional, at least for the first or two, excuse me administrations because there are reactions that people have to them uh... amoxicillin uh... aminoglycosides Uh, let's see although canamycin and capriamycin are no longer recommended um, because their use was associated with higher rates of uh, treatment failure and death uh... let's see thianamides these can be used anyway long long list of uh... there are drugs that are available um, for these drug-resistant tuberculosis. The problem is, uh, like I said, if you don't have the, the adequate amount to give or you don't have somebody taking them for the adequate amount of time, you're just gonna continue to create more and more of these superbugs that become resistant to more and more medications. And it's an issue that we see, even in the United States where we have really good healthcare, we're still seeing it a lot, which is why uh, recently in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, probably even less than that, maybe five years, there's been a real, attempt to try and not prescribe antibiotics unless you know 100% that there's a bacterial infection and then you try to specify what that bacterial infection is so that you're not uh, giving bacteria an upper hand and trying to create these superbugs. Uh, eventually I want to have, I want to talk to somebody about superbugs, whether it's a pharmacist or one of the physicians that I work with, because it's actually pretty interesting and kind of scary uh, when you think about you know not being able to treat Uh, some kind of bacteria, because we don't have the antibiotics for it anymore, because it's gain-resistance. So, anyway, that's kind of the treatment aspect of it. So, let's talk a little bit about the history of tuberculosis. Like, how far back does TB go? Anybody want to guess? Somebody take a guess while I take a little sip of tea here. 2,000 years? Did you say 2,000? Yeah. How about, uh, let's see... Evidence of TB can be found dating back about 4,000 years. May have been around even longer than that, uh, but there is evidence in bones uh, dating back about 4,000 years ago. Uh, these tubercular deformities—they were found in ancient Egypt, uh, and I guess found quite a bit. So it seems like it was, you know, it's fairly common uh, in that population. There were also uh, very similar deformities that were found uh, at Neolithic sites in Italy, uh, Denmark, and even in uh, countries in the Middle East. So TB traveled well throughout the world uh, as long as you know, 4,000 years ago. So you might ask yourself, where did tuberculosis come from? Was it some kind of alien bacteria that was carried here on a meteorite? Probably not. Uh, the, the origin of TB it's kind of been the subject of a lot of recent investigation, uh, and it was thought to uh, initially be found in soil, and then species uh, you know that I mentioned at the top of the program here, they evolved to uh, end up being able to live in mammals. So, it was actually thought once that uh, Mycobacterium bovis, which causes the TB-like disease in cows, was actually zoonotically spread uh, to humans, but it looks like with genetic research they've kind of figured that they have two different lineages, So, it seems like it kind of started in the dirt, and then uh, infected humans from there a long time ago. Uh, Going back, as far as the 7th century BC, uh, there are Assyrian clay tablets which describe patients' coughing blood. So, possibly as far back as 7 BC, there was some kind of uh, uh, at least possible indication that tuberculosis existed. Uh, But going back, even like the earliest days of medicine, so practitioners have been trying to find the origins of TB, Hippocrates, which is 5th century BC, so a long time, kind of the father of medicine, we take the Hippocratic Oath, and it's named after old Hippocrates here. He actually wrote of patients with consumption, which is another name for tuberculosis, uh, which is a wasting away that was associated with chest pain and coughing, uh, frequently had blood in the sputum. In the 4th century BC, Aristotle... Kind of stressed the contagious nature of this disease of consumption of tuberculosis, uh, as did Galen, who was uh, another uh, great Roman physician. That was in the second century A.D. So even going back that far, they kind of there was an idea that this was a really contagious kind of nasty disease. Uh, so how did it get where you know? How did it get to these areas? It was, like I said, it was found in the Middle East. It was found in Egypt. It was all over Europe. So it was actually thought there was probably introduced uh, by migration of Indo-Europeans who spread the disease through Europe and Asia, just with migrations to these regions. And then obviously, once you have the Silk Road that opens up, it was just causation for spread. And then obviously, I'll talk about in a little bit here, just the spread to the New World once people started traveling more. Uh, so if you jump ahead uh, many centuries, uh, <laughs> excuse me, So Europe, uh, Europe had a population explosion in the second millennium AD. You had growth of these large urban centers, you know, you had Paris and London, uh, all through Europe. And they became the epicenters for a lot of TB epidemics, uh, especially starting the 16th and 17th centuries. Uh, In the 17th century, in southern Europe, there was still this belief that TB was really caused by contagious uh, spread, human to human. Conversely, though, there were doctors and there were medical pundits in some of the northern European areas that favored this uh, constitutional or hereditary cause of the disease. And they went back and forth for quite a while, a couple of centuries kind of arguing uh, how it was caused. Was it caused by somebody who is is born with this genetic disorder and they end up getting TB? Is it caused by the spread? And there were arguments for both sides. it, it was believed that that southern theory of it being a contagion wasn't really rigorously proven. Uh, they couldn't explain why some people in urban settings would get sick with tuberculosis while the same person who lived next door wouldn't have it. Uh, and this kind of uh, had a lot of contention between two different sides uh, until people started actually doing experiments with it. So the disease actually peaked in Europe that first half of the 19th century, so like the mid-1800s, or early to mid-1980s. Early, yeah, early to mid-1800s. And then uh, at that time, it was kind of estimated that about one quarter of Europeans had died of tuberculosis or were dying from it. Uh, There was a study that was done at a Paris hospital uh, right around that time in the early 19th century where about 250 out of 696, so 250 out of almost 700 cadavers showed that they had died of tuberculosis. So it's an insane, you know, mortality rate. Uh... This uh, argument of whether or not it was hereditary versus whether or not it was contagious continued until about the mid-1800s. In 1865, uh, Jean-Antoine Villemin, who was a French military physician, actually reported that he was able to give TB uh, to laboratory rabbits by inoculating them with TB tissue from a cadaver. Uh, This kind of helped to prove the, the contagion theory But at the same time, there were others in the French medical establishment who said that there had to be a more modern and more social solution to the problem of TB. Uh, At this time, there was a lot of social people in France anyway. They were trying to get better working conditions, uh, better conditions for the poor. And they used TB in the poor as kind of just an example of how those who are lower class are more susceptible to disease, uh, trying to change these working conditions and living conditions for these people. At the same time, there's this real nature versus nurture, social versus you know medical debate going on. But a few years later, in 1872, uh, a gentleman named Robert Koch, K-O-C-H, Koch, Koch, yeah, uh, Cook, I guess it's Cook, right? Yeah, Robert Cook uh, actually was able to show that tuberculosis was caused by bacteria and kind of discredit a lot of these social arguments. And Cook's whole idea that bacteria was the cause was also uh, found to be true by another gentleman who named Edward Trudeau whose work in the late 19th century to early 20th century uh, again with rabbits was able to prove that uh, he was able to inoculate so he took two sets of rabbits he took one set of rabbits and gave them kind of a open air area uh, he made sure they were well fed Uh, He inoculated, he gave them, like I see inoculated, he infected them with tuberculosis uh, and let them run free range. And then he took another set of rabbits, put them in a dark area, didn't feed them that much, uh, enclosed space where they were closer together, infected them. Uh, The outcomes to this were that the rabbits who had more area to roam, more food, had a much, much lower rate of getting tuberculosis or dying from it whereas there's a much higher incidence of death and infection from the tuberculosis from this uh, the segment of rabbits who were uh, in a much smaller area and not well fed. So it wasn't a huge study, uh, definitely not rigorous by today's standards, uh, very small sample size, but it was enough to kind of prove to people that uh, One, it was a bacteria that caused tuberculosis, but it gave some validity as well to this social aspect where if you have people who aren't uh, in close quarters and who are better nourished, maybe that would actually help them. Uh, And this kind of gave uh, birth to the whole sanitarium movement uh, for people who had tuberculosis in the late 1800s all the way up into the early 20th century. Uh, Which kind of brings me to, so Trudeau was, he actually had a, a sanitarium here in the United States. Um, this was going on in Europe, but in the New World uh, about the same time, you had this huge influx of European immigrants uh, and they kind of brought all kinds of fun diseases with them including tuberculosis. Uh, never got to be as bad as in Europe with the mortality rates, but you still had large urban areas, uh, Boston, New York, The TB death rates uh, were about 6 to 7 per 1,000 people in 1800, which was pretty high. Uh, And then uh, they did decline a bit to about 4 per 1,000 people in the late 1800s. But still a lot of people, a lot of immigrants kind of brought that disease with them uh, just into the new world, especially in these, uh, these urban centers. What did help though was, you know, after the turn of the century here, like early 1900s, you started seeing uh, more public health, uh, more just cleaner drinking water, more sanitation. Uh, and these public health measures actually played a, a huge part just in the declining mortality rates as well as the spread of tuberculosis. The, uh, the creation of a vaccine also helped. Uh, it was actually created from the it's a bovine vaccine. Uh, as well as the discovery of antibiotics. That was kind of a big one uh, in the 1940s and 1950s. Uh, initially, it was streptomycin. And then just subsequently, you had the, all these other antibiotics, the isonazides, rifampin, uh, pyrazinamide, And these all helped to treat TB uh, just kind of in those later years. So you started to see a huge kind of dip in the mortality rates and the positivity rates in the 20th century uh, interestingly enough, until about the mid 1980s, uh, in the mid 1980s, even here in the the you know modern United States with great health care, you started to see this upswing in tuberculosis cases. Uh, a lot of this was kind of directed towards increasedness and homelessness, increasedness, increased homelessness, increased homelessness uh, as well as poverty, and then also the emergence of AIDS. So when AIDS first hit, there were no treatments for it, uh, and it's As I said before, people who are HIV uh, positive with no immune systems, uh, TB really does them in. So uh, it was only really by, you know, a a lot of money thrown at it and a lot of human resources, um, a lot of really directly monitored antibiotic delivery that uh, the little mini epidemic that started in the 1980s has started to kind of be reversed uh, in the Europe and here in the U.S., uh, but in the underdeveloped world, it's they still have a huge TB problem right now. Uh, according to the WHO, uh, active TB still remains the leading cause of death from infectious disease in the world, which is nuts. Uh, the WHO estimates that each year there are about 10 million uh, incident cases of tuberculosis. There are about 1.5 million deaths due to tuberculosis. Uh, And only about uh, 214,000 of those are from HIV positive people. So you got about 1.3 million deaths among people who are non-HIV positive. So still a huge amount. Uh, Children under 15 account for about 11% of all tuberculosis cases. And if you're looking at uh, TB cases and where you can find them, the majority of tuberculosis cases today are in Southeast Asia. There's about 43%. Africa has about 25%. Again, in Africa with surveillance, we really don't know, it's just we don't have a lot of great data just because the healthcare is so poor there. And then in the Western Pacific, you get about 18% of cases. So if you look, I mean, a lot of these are third world areas they are underdeveloped and they just have poor or no access to healthcare. Uh, as a comparison, if you're trying to figure out like the incidence of TB, let's say from somewhere like North America. Only about 10 people per 100,000 people in North America are positive for tuberculosis. Whereas you have about 100 to 300 per 100,000 people. So about, 100, about 10 times, 10 to 30 times more people in Asia and Western Russia are positive. And then it's you know over 30, so 300 per 100,000 in Southern and Central Africa. So more than 30 times in Southern and Central Africa. Um, it's estimated that there's uh, one death from tuberculosis about every 15 seconds, and about 8 million people develop a new TB infection every year. Uh, and as I said before, you know mortality is pretty high. Without treatment, you're talking of uh, about up to 60% of people with the disease will die. So, uh, and as I said, you know most of these cases of deaths are in the third world. So it's not you get you know adequate treatment. United States, Europe, uh, depending where you are in Asia, uh, pretty good treatment for it. But uh, it's, you know, these countries that have a lack of resources, poor housing, uh, and no, you know, they don't have the adequate antibiotics or not enough or just poor medical care. So it's still a pretty deadly disease out there. Uh In case you were wondering, there are uh, a lot of people, famous, notable people, I mean, famous, but notable people in history who have had either, they've either died of tuberculosis or had tuberculosis. I can't confirm the deaths, but I can at least give you a list of of at least who's had it. So uh, let's start with some famous authors Um, Emily Bronte, uh, Anton Chekhov, Washington Irving, John Keats, Alexander Pope. Sir Walter Scott, uh, that's not Willard Scott, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Dylan Thomas, Henry David Thoreau, Thomas Wolfe, and Walt Whitman, and there's a whole other list that I was looking at. Um, There's some famous artists, uh, you know artists notorious Mm. for getting their STDs, but why not get some TB as well. Uh, Paul Gauguin, William Rainey, Edward Monk, who who did The Scream, uh, a lot of musicians have had it as well, uh, going back classical style. We got Frederick Chopin, uh, Stephen Foster, uh, Niccolò Paganini, uh, Igor Stravinsky, and then even some modern musicians, which I was kind of surprised at. Uh, Ringo Starr has had tuberculosis. Uh, Cat Stevens, I think his name is Yusuf Islam now. Uh, Tom Jones, Sex Bomb Tom Jones, had tuberculosis and then uh, country legend jimmy rogers as well so uh, and then kind of cruising down the list there's actually you know notable uh, politicians and a few other famous people some actors uh andrew jackson had tuberculosis james monroe napoleon ii of france uh, eleanor roosevelt had tb nelson mandela had tb Tad Lincoln, who was uh, Abe's eldest son. He actually died of tuberculosis when he was 18. Uh, W.C. Fields, famous uh, actor and comedian from, uh, god, 1930s and 40s probably. Uh, And, uh, of course, uh, John Dock Holliday, from Tombstone fame, uh, was also uh, someone notably who had tuberculosis. So it was something that affected a lot of people, all different lifestyles, Um, you know, rich to poor, it didn't matter. Um, Like I said, not all these people died of tuberculosis, but uh, they were at least diagnosed with it, which kind of speaks to the amount of people that that can be affected by it. So so that's kind of TB in a nutshell. Now that we've discussed all the fun facts of TB and what it is and how to treat it and where you get it, uh, let's talk about our death count. This is going to be a big one, people. Like I said, TB kills about 1.5 million people per year. Uh, if we trace that back, uh, I'm gonna go back. So, you know, the Assyrian records were 7,000 BC, right? I think, is that what it was? Yeah, anyway, I'm gonna go back uh 4,000 BC. Uh, we'll multiply that 1.5 million by, uh, that's 6,022 years. And we get a total of 9 billion and 33 million deaths from it. So, as we like to do here, we like to take the, uh, we like to try and reach the moon, the Empire State Building, or wrap our dead around the earth. So, let's stack our dead, the average height 5 feet 5 inches tall. Uh, we'll multiply that um, by our 9 billion and 33 million deaths, and we get, uh, A total of 48,928,750,000 feet. Uh, That equals about 9,266,808 miles. So that is a stack of dead people right there. And Tad Lincoln's in there somewhere. Um, So if we're trying to stack our dead to the moon, the moon is 238,900 miles away. We could actually reach the moon 38.8 times, which is crazy. Uh, If we want to stack our dead head to toe to reach the top of the Empire State Building, which uh, is 1,455 feet high, we could actually reach the top... What do we got here? 3,362,800 times. That is a lot of Empire State Buildings. And then, if we tried to wrap our debt around the Earth, the Earth's circumference—it's uh, 24,901 miles—we could actually wrap the Earth 372 times. So, pretty crazy. Uh, it just goes to show. So, TV—it's been around for a while. Uh, it's contagious. It, interestingly enough, I mean, like I said, 90 to 95 percent of the people who get it, uh, well, their body will fight it; they'll be asymptomatic, and you know, they'll never have any issues. But that other five to ten percent who get it. Uh, latent form, or active form, if it's not taken care of, like I said, it's about 60% uh, you know, fatal, 60% mortality rate after five years. So, you know, tuberculosis. And I think a lot of people think that TB doesn't exist anymore today, especially here in the United States, you think about it. And it's something that seems kind of antiquated. It definitely rings back to like the Old West, and people would move out West to relieve their consumption with the dry weather and, and all that. Uh, still a gigantic issue, especially in third world countries, and especially with the drug resistance that uh, is kind of going on these days. So So that's TB in a nutshell. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, glad to be back. I got through that with only coughing once, I think. so uh, please let me know uh, if you have any questions, any feedback, any requests, always, I'll take them at You make me sick pod at gmail.com. Uh, as always, I appreciate all my listeners everywhere around the world. Uh, thank you very much. I hope you all had a really good holiday season, good Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, uh, whatever else you celebrate, uh, you know, Festivus. Uh, like I said, let me know uh, if there's anything anybody wants to do. I'm not sure what I'm going to do next. Um, I still need to do Q-Fever with uh, with my friend Matt, who's had Q-Fever. Uh, other than that, uh, anything's on the table. So, uh, as always, hope you're all doing well, uh, and remember to wash your hands. <laughs> you know, Stephen Foster. Oh, Susanna. Camptown races. Even stinking fast. Oh, yes, well, this happens to be a nocturne. Which? You know, Frederick fucking Chopin. Dang.